Hello and welcome to PW Kids Cast, the children's book podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors and illustrators creating books for children and teens. I'm John Sellers, the children's reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today I'm speaking with best-selling author Matthew Quick, whose books for teenagers include Forgive Me Leonard Peacock, Boy 21, and Sorta Like a Rockstar. He's also the author of several books for adults, including Love May Fail, The Good Luck of Right Now, and The Silver Linings Playbook, which was adapted into a film in 2012 and picked up eight Oscar nominations along the way. Quick's next book, Every Exquisite Thing, arrives in May from Little Brown, which is sponsoring this podcast. In Every Exquisite Thing, Nanette O'Hare's life seems to be heading down a fairly predictable path, finish out her senior year of high school, and then on to college on academic and athletic scholarships. Then she gets a tattered copy of an out-of-print book, The Bubblegum Reaper, from her English teacher. Suddenly, Nanette finds herself befriending the author, Nigel Booker, meeting a boy who loves the book as much as she does, quitting the soccer team, and reevaluating what she wants or expects out of life. Matthew, thanks for speaking with me. Hey, thanks so much for having me today. So, you know, I feel like I'm kind of doomed to play the role of Nanette, uh, Alex, and some of the other fans of uh, the Bubblegum Reaper in this interview. I'm going to be asking you all these questions like, what does this book really mean? And you know, what happens <laughs> at the end? Uh, I'm going to apologize in advance for that. <laughs> That's okay. But I am curious. You know, the book kind of starts with this transformative moment where Nanette is given this book that ends up changing her life in some really big ways. I guess, personally, have you had some moments or books like that that have really stood out over the years? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's, There's been... There's been so many. Um, I think first and foremost is finding literature when I was a teenager. Uh, you know, I grew up in a blue collar town and my parents didn't read, you know, my relatives and friends didn't read books. So, uh, you know, just finding literature at the age of 15 was, was transformative enough. But I remember reading Slaughterhouse Five for the first time and kind of understanding, you know, what had happened to my grandfather in World War II and the fallout of all that. And the first time somebody put a more comic book in my hand was, was pretty transformative. But I, I've had a million of those experiences, as I think pretty much any author would. Was that idea sort of looking at a, how a book or even just words can really affect or change someone, you know, positively or negatively? Was that one of the starting points uh, for this book for you? Yeah, it was, it was, it was one of them. Um, to be honest, you know, one of the kind of jumping off points for me when I was thinking about what I wanted to do was the fact that I was receiving so much fan mail from teenagers and they wanted to know what happened to Leonard Peacock at the end of Forgive Me Leonard Peacock and what happens next. And they wanted to know what happened to my characters in Boy 21 and they wanted sequels and they, they wanted all of this information from me. And I realized that you know, while I had put these books out into the world and I thought that they were complete, in my readers' minds, they they just you know, would develop this type of relationship with these characters that would, that would go on. And they wanted to continue that, which of course is, is the greatest compliment you can get as an author. And, and I appreciated all of those letters, but it also made me feel a little, a little strange because I realized what I was trying to do wasn't necessarily what was happening in the minds of my readers. And so that kind of relationship between author and reader being on the other side of it for the first time was what really made me start to think about um, the bubblegum reaper and, and, and Wrigley and Nigel Booker. And, you know, there is a scene in the book, I think it's Booker who, who you know, is describing his own writing and saying, you know, these books are complete. You know, we, we get to spend this little window with these characters and that's sort of it. Was that sort of your way of trying to speak directly to the kinds of kids who are asking these sort of questions and wondering these sort of things and thinking that about the books they're reading? I, I think it was more, you know, throwing a question back at, at them. You know, I think when you're 15 or 16, you have these assumptions about what a reading experience should be. And they're largely, usually formed by what your teachers tell you in school. 
And, you know, so for me, I think if a teenager reads one of my books and, and they have all of these questions at the end, it, to me, that's a win just right there because they're thinking, they're asking questions, um, not only about my books, but about their own world and what people are telling them about their life and about literature. And, and so for me, I always kind of want to throw that question back. I, I don't, I don't ever want to give or pretend to give somebody a definitive answer. I want to make people think, which is what I want to do when I read literature. One of the uh, things that Nigel says a few times in the book is that there's you know, no such thing as fiction or fictional characters. Uh, do you have, a, I guess, personal beliefs on, on that idea? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I always state that my books are fiction. You know, that's the first thing people ask me, you know, who are these characters based on? And, you know, the, the honest answer is, is nobody and everyone. Um, you know, I think fiction bubbles up from the subconscious and, you know, we wear the mask of fiction. We change all the names, you know, we, we change the story, we change the plot. But I think any author is fueled by, you know, the churning that goes on deep inside, whether it's in our mind, our heart, our soul, whatever. Uh, you know, we're always kind of working through problems and fiction is just one way to do that. And so I think it's, you know, I've often heard people say that in fiction, you can, you can be more honest than you can in nonfiction. And when I teach fiction, my students always say, no way, no way. You always tell the truth in nonfiction. And the way that I answer that is I'll say, okay, I'm going to ask you to write an essay about your mother and she's going to read it at the end. Are you going to tell the truth? And then I said, well, if you write a story about someone else's mother and put certain attributes of your own mother and have that mask of fiction, you can really tell truths that you can't tell in real life. So, you know, I think there's no such thing as fiction in the book. I think Booker and, and, and myself too, I, I think we want people to, to question what is fiction, to have that conversation and to really think about it. You know, I don't think it spoils too much to say that at one point in the book, uh, Nanette ends up seeing a therapist and uh, uh, she has her try to refer to herself in third person as part of an experiment. And you basically take and shift the entire novel from first person to third person at that point in the book. Um, was that something you've been waiting to try? Something that just felt right for this particular book? Uh, something else entirely? It was just what had to happen in the story. Um, you know, I don't, I don't usually outline my stories. I usually just write and see where it takes you. And at that point in the story, I, I thought that that was something that uh, Nanette needed to do. I thought it was something that her, her counselor would, would maybe make her do. But it was also a great way to, to, again, like shift the point of view in the story and to really evaluate what is a first-person character and who are the first-person characters in our own lives. You know, we think of ourselves as the I, but when we shift that to the you or the he or the she, um, it, it definitely gives us a different point of view. I did my, my thesis, my MFA thesis on Gao Xingzhen, the Nobel, the Chinese Nobel laureate. And he has a book called Soul Mountain that is written in first, second, and third point of view. So I was heavily influenced by that. Hmm. Now, you also work several poems uh, from the character Alex into the novel. Uh, I'm not sure if you've... Uh incorporated poetry into previous books before, but, you know, when you're talking about the power of, of words and of language, and especially even, I guess, of fiction to uh, get at a certain truth, do you think that poetry as a form in and of itself has a particular power that uh, you're attracted to? I, absolutely. I mean, I, I love poetry and, you know, I, when I was a teenager, I used to write so much poetry. None of it was very good. Um, but I think it's just, it, it's kind of an easy access point. Poetry is one of those things that everybody can do, but so few people can do very well. Um, whereas not everybody can sit down and write a novel. So I think for teenagers in particular, and especially when I taught high school English, it was a great way to get non-writers to sit down and say, 
all right, write a 50 word poem rather than, you know, a 5,000 word essay. And, you know, I think teenagers are fascinated by song lyrics for that reason as well. Um, and oftentimes, you know, you can get to the heart of, of feelings very quickly with a, with a good poem or a good song. And I think that's what's so attractive for young readers. And that's definitely how I felt when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. You know, you also make Nanette uh, an athlete in the book, though she's talented, but not necessarily um, actually happy uh, doing what she's doing. Not to keep bringing this back to you and, you know, real life, but I think you also coached for some time. Did you pull from that a little bit when uh, you know looking at that that side of her character? I, I, absolutely, I coached um, boys basketball and, and girls soccer for about seven years. And um, one of the things that you know, I love sports, and you know, I love playing sports, and I loved coaching. Um, but high school sports, in particular, I, I, I was teaching and coaching at a school that was winning was very important um, and going to the, the best colleges was very important. So there was a huge amount of pressure to get the best grades and, and to win the conference and to win states every year. And our best athletes that I worked with were usually so relieved when the season was over. Uh, and it, it was always struck me that the star athletes were never the ones who were really enjoying being on the team. Uh, there was definitely some notable exceptions to that. But when I think back at who all the best players, and I won't name names here, some of them uh, even you know went on to play in college and you know made a name for themselves, they, they never really enjoyed it. And it was always interesting to me because we, we start playing basketball and soccer. It's supposed to be fun. And then somewhere in our teens, uh, you know, we start dividing all the kids that are really good and saying, you know, you can get an academic scholarship or, you know, perhaps you can go on to play pro. And I would see what these kids would give up in order to uh, appease the adults who were telling them that this was really, really important to do. It was no longer just important to play soccer or basketball. It was really important to win a state championship. It was really important to play for a D1 division. And some of these students who, you know, had, had played for their entire lives decided not to even play in college because they were so burned out and they just, they just didn't want to go into a gym or on a field anymore. And it was really kind of sad to see these kids who, who really had a love and a spark for the game to see it ground out of them by adults who were quite fanatical about sports. Yeah, there's that moment in the book where Booker says something along the lines of, you know, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you have to do it. And it's such a, I feel like it's such a powerful idea for a lot of teens or even, you know, any reader really to to come up against because, you know, there's so much that we encourage, like, you know, find what you're good at and, you know, go after it. But there is a difference, I guess, between, you know, what one is good at and, and what you actually love or what you, where your passions really lie. Yeah, that, that line is actually a friend of mine who lives in the jungles of, of Peru in Iquitos, uh, whom I met when I took some students down there on a school trip. Uh, he's, he's kind of an ex-hippie type, and you know I became very good friends with him because he led our tour, and we became email buddies. And when I was trying to decide whether I was going to leave teaching or not to start writing, one of my big hang-ups was that I felt that I was a very good teacher, and I felt that I was turning my back on a career that I thought was really important. And he said that line to me. He said, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you have to do it. And for the first time, it felt like somebody was really giving me permission not to teach and to pursue writing. And it was such a pivotal moment for me. And I, I think that's a message that we, we never give that to kids. We say, if you're good at something, you have to you know, be the best in America. You've got to take it all the way, whether you're happy or not. And I think that that's, that's a very dangerous American um, thought or motto or, you know, however you want to put it, that we, that we give kids all the time. Your first uh, YA novel was uh, sort of like a rock star in 2010, uh, about two years after Silver Linings Playbook. Was writing YA something you actively were pursuing or was it more a matter of being told, hey, you know, this book, this is actually YA? It was, you know, it's, I've told this story a lot of times, but after 
Silver Linings was bought and we got the movie deal, my agent told me it would not be advantageous to sell another adult book until we we saw the Silver Linings Playbook movie in the theaters. And so we were trying to decide what I should do. And I was on a park bench in New York City and said, you should write YA. And I remember I had all kinds of lingering MFA snobbery, you know, still active in my brain. And I laughed at him and I said, I do not write genre, you know, as if I was, you know, some, you know, super literary writer or something like that. And I remember Doug, he just rolled his eyes on the park bench and he's like, you taught high school English for seven years. Like you write voicey stuff. He said, you know, J.D. Salinger, Catching a Ride, that's that's YA. Like just do what you do, but set it from the point of view of a teenager. And it was really, uh, again, like a very pivotal moment for me because I had this misconception of what I thought YA was. And of course, now having, you know, this is my fourth YA book and, mm-hmm. and meeting a lot of people, you know, I no longer feel that way, obviously, but it was almost like I needed permission to do that as well. Mm. Do you feel like you approach uh, your books for adults and teens any differently, or does it just sort of come down to the characters and stories that you're telling? I'm a voice-driven writer, so once I find a voice, I just do everything you know the same. And I'd like to to think that all of my books are character-driven, um, and so I really do the same thing. Whether you know the character happens to be 19 or you know 40 or whatever age, I just try to get into the mind of that character, figure out what they're telling us and what they're not telling us, and and try to construct the narrative based on figuring out who that person is. So it's really exactly the same. Uh, you know, of course, it's it's marketed differently, and you know, people treat it differently. But in my mind, I don't really see any difference between my YA and adult books. Correct me if I'm wrong, definitely, but you know, I feel like all of your books are essentially set in our world. You know, there are the, can be some dramatic or cinematic things happening, but you're not really bringing explicit fantasy elements into it. Why do you think that is? Um, I I think it's probably because I I think that the human psyche is is pretty strange and weird enough. You know, I think there's a, there's a lot to mine there. I don't have anything against, you know, dystopian novels or um, novels. You know, I, I just read The Eats or Not, you know, which is a graphic novel um, about alien invasion, which I loved. I, I thought it was fantastic, fantastic graphic novel. I don't know. I just haven't felt called to write anything like that yet. Um, I won't say that I won't in the future. In fact, I was just talking to a friend last night about perhaps, you know, experimenting, finding an artist to do some type of graphic novel that might be a little bit more um, out of the uh, ordinary compared to what that I have done in the past. But I don't know. It's just what I felt called to write. And, you know, I, I just tried to, to, to do what I feel I should be doing at the time. And, and so that each book that I've written is, is really, I think, about an issue or a problem that I was I was working on in my own life, and metaphorically, I tackle that on the page. So, you know, characters who don't necessarily fit or even want to fit into, I guess, what we might call conventional society, they seem to pop up a lot in a lot of your books. Why is it that you think that you end up returning to those kinds of characters? Well, I think for two reasons. I think number one, they're they're the type of characters and people uh, with whom I'd like to spend time. Uh, you know, I've always this strange weird kids were always my favorite students, the kids that were not popular, the kids that were silent and just hung out in the back of the room. Those were always the most interesting kids to work with as a teacher. Uh, They always wrote the best essays. They always had a unique point of view. Um, I'm definitely not a herd kind of guy, you know, I've never been, I've, I've, I'm, I'm an introvert by nature, um, you know, which means that 75% of the, the, the world doesn't understand really how I think or feel. Um, you know, we live in an extroverted world and I think most of the people that I read, uh, most of my, my heroes, my, my author heroes are pretty introverted, weird people. 
for, for me, I'm always trying to figure out why am I this way and why do I feel like I don't fit in? Cause I've never felt that I've, that I've fit in. And I've always been very attracted to talking with other people who, who feel that way. And not that there's anything wrong with fitting in, you know, I, I envy people who are extroverted and, uh, you know, find comfort in, in the things that many people do. You know, I, a lot of times I, I've wished that I, I could be more like that, just like Nanette in the book. I think if she can wave her magic wand, she would, she would want to fit in. She would want to like playing soccer. She would want to like doing all the things that all the other people in her school do, but she can't. And, you know, in a lot of ways she, she's punished for that. But again, you know, if you look at where art comes from or where literature comes from, or a lot of times the best music comes from, it's, it's always people who feel alienated. Uh, you know, I, I remember when I heard uh, Nevermind by Nirvana for the first time, I was in 11th grade and I, I instantly understood like Kurt Cobain, understood how I felt. You know, I mean, it's a cliche example, maybe, but it was the same thing when I read Kurt Vonnegut. You know, I read a Kurt Vonnegut book and I'm like, this guy understands how I feel. And I remember meeting someone who knew uh, one of Kurt Vonnegut's nieces, and I won't, I won't drop names here, but I remember they said that they described Kurt as, as weird uncle Kurt, you know, he was the weird guy in the family. And that was the time. And I said, well, maybe I could be a writer. Cause I think, you know, a lot of people would describe me that way. And you know, it looked to me like most, if not all, of your your books either have been optioned or in the development for film. Is there any news you can share about any of those? Yeah, all of my books have been options and are in various stages of development. This is a tricky question because I have to remember what I'm allowed to say and what I'm not allowed to say. So um, I can say that Every Exquisite Thing is with the Weinstein Company. And Ted Melfi, who did St. Vincent, has written a screenplay and he's pretty much signed on to direct. And we have we have some pretty good mo- momentum there. Uh, Boy 21, uh, there's some action there that's going to be announced soon, but I'm not allowed to say. And there's a screenplay for sort of like a rock star as well. And I, I believe that's with Fox Searchlight, if I can remember correctly. And then all of my adult books as well are in, are in various stages of production. So you kind of just cross your fingers because anything can happen in LA. And, um, you know, Silver Linings was like a, a big up and down roller coaster ride before that actually started the film. So I take all the information with the grain of salt because the, the actors' names change and the directors change. And, you know, until it starts, until it starts filming, you just, you just really never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so back on the print side, is there anything that you feel like you can talk about that you're either working on or thinking about either for adults or teens? Yeah, I have a, um, I'm on a contract right now writing a book for HarperCollins. That's, that's an adult book. So that'll be my next, my next adult book. And I feel really good about that. I can't really talk much about the plot. And I'm also writing a, an original screenplay for the Weinstein Company. I'm under contract with them as well. So. I'm working on those two projects simultaneously and the screenplay writing has been a lot of fun. It's been a, a different way to tell stories and it's more collaborative because I'm working with execs at the Weinstein company. So you go back and forth and they're very involved in the creative process, which is different for me because I'm used to just kind of, you know, getting a contract from a, a publisher in New York and then just disappearing for a year and then emerging a year later. So I think in some ways it's it's healthy to be working with these people in LA because they make me communicate with people throughout the year. And, and that's always a good thing. Uh, well, thanks again for speaking with me and uh, congratulations on the new book. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure. Once again, I've been speaking with Matthew Quick, whose latest book, Every Exquisite Thing, arrives in May from Little Brown. Thank you for listening to PW Kids Cast. 